Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. Thank you for listening in to episode 15 of the Our Better Half podcast. Our guest will be Walker Thornton, and we will have visits from Our Better Half correspondents, Alberta Knish and Marina Maklos. It's April 24th, 2016, and Prince has died. 57. I'm not going to try to claim a personal connection. It isn't about me. But the soundtrack of our youth, well, it's also the soundtrack of our sexual awakening, right? We may move on, we may appreciate new jams, but if Elvis or Sam Cooke or Annie Lennox or Katie Lang made us feel good about being us then, well, all it takes is a few notes to bring you back, no matter how old you get. And when they die, a bit of our sexual selves dims with them. So since these folks who backed our track to sexy, the ones who didn't die young, are aging with us and dying alongside us, there are some figures in the popular culture who speak to us as a group. And this fellow, this Prince Rogers Nelson, 57, well, he was all about sex for a lot of people. His music was the soundtrack to this whole stage of sexual awakening for a lot of people in their 50s and younger and older. Prince was sex of an era. He's so, he was not subtle, he was not ironic, he was unapologetically androgynous and raunchy. He was surrounded by empowered-looking women. He was romantic. He was aesthetically Victorian in leather. He was intense, pretty weird. And that was that era all over. Is how I look at it. He wasn't your boyfriend. He was the one who resented you for turning him down. The one who would prove you wrong by what he did in his music. And that you wanted your crush to act like about you. I don't think anyone would try to paint the Paisley Prince as one of us. But I get the sense that a lot of us felt it in the gut on Thursday when we heard he had died. And a bit of us goes with him. Kiss. One of my hobbies, aside from talking about sex on this podcast, is genealogy, which means I spend a lot of time learning what happened to people in generations past as they aged, because I can see where they lived. Mostly, women whose husbands left or died were shelved in a daughter's back bedroom, and widowed men were too. Men needed women to do the basic tasks of life, and women needed men as financial protectors. In the past, as you aged, you were dependent on your children. Welcome to the future. We no longer die during childbirth or exhaustion in our 50s and 60s. We no longer need spouses or our children necessarily to feed and house us. Aging has changed. So, as I've spent more time reading and meeting and learning about the modern world of sex, I have been delighted to encounter a growing number of second-half-of-life folks 
who are pioneering the discussion of sex beyond the childbearing years, because it isn't necessarily all about marriage anymore. New scripts are being written all over. And let me tell you, I adore these folks. Most are women, and their journeys are fascinating. This is uncharted ocean, my friends. We're more often single, divorced, widowed, and you know what? This is not a tragedy, but it's also not a well-worn path. We don't need to be married or monogamous. We don't need to shelve our sexuality and sexual exploration as we get older. And as I've learned more about the people out there talking and teaching and exploring these issues, I'm filled with admiration and a new vision of the future. (laughs) And for a vanilla old married lady who hasn't been paying attention, it's eye-opening and inspiring. For one example, I want you to meet Walker Thornton. She's out there talking about all this in a thoughtful and often poetic way. Read her blog and hear her talk and you see an intersection of the very modern world of sex-positive conversation in a person with the gravitas and wisdom and curiosity of a seasoned human being. She's finishing a book called Inviting Desire, about bringing desire, back into our lives at midlife and beyond. Hello, Walker. Hi, Laura. It's nice to talk with you. Thank you. I'm I'm tickle pink to be here. (laughs) What was your childhood dream for who you'd be when you grew up? Oh, gee. (laughs) I think I wanted to be Cherry Ames, the nurse. You remember those books? Oh, my. I think I do. Yeah, the little pink and white candy striped uniform. I think that's what I, I saw myself being. Or maybe Joe from Little Women. Um, I didn't have a real solid dream. Oh, I was totally Joe. <laughs> yeah. I get that. Or Nancy Drew. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yes, boy, we're dating ourselves already. <laughs> that's, the, that's the point <laughs> of this podcast. So how old are you now? I am 61. I will turn 62 in August. And how is 61 treating you? You know, it's absolutely fine. It, um, yes, I see differences. You know, yes, I kind of look at my neck in the mirror. But um, I actually think that I look better and feel better about my life than I have in a long time. Wow, that's beautiful. Uh, you know, I'm, it's a good place to be, actually. Mm-hmm. Tell me something about your work as a sex educator. What does that mean? <sighs> oh, well, um, Yeah, I view my work as trying to open a conversation for women and and more and more now to to a degree men um, about embracing our sexuality as we age, Mm -hmm. making people comfortable, having the conversations, providing information that, as you've pointed out, is not um, anti-aging and that sort of says we get to embrace this time in our life. That's that's how I view that. And how do you do your work? Well, um, much of what I do at the moment is writing. I um, write on my own website and I write for a number of sites who specifically were looking for writing geared to midlife adults. Um, I'm doing some public speaking and I'm working on a book for women 
and you know, I'm sort of taking all those approaches, and I'm exploring other options, you know, other ways that I can work with women, whether that's coaching or, or teaching. I'm, you know, I'm still discovering ways to do this. I want to read something that you wrote recently, and it's the topic that I'd love to, for you to talk about today. You wrote, this new year is all about desire for me, following my heart's desire, sexual desire, a desire to taste good food, see new places, meet new people, and experience new things, a desire to live the way I want to live, however messy or colorful that looks. People also often think that when you say desire, you're just talking about craving sex. And for me, it's all tied together, being alive and awake and, and actively bringing things into my life that make me feel good. I think I haven't always done that. You know, I've been a caregiver for a number of years, a mother. I'm now beginning caregiving from my mother. And so life wasn't always about me. It was about who I was meant to take care of, what my role was supposed to do. And now I get to do what I want, which means I also have to ignore or get to ignore those people who I make uncomfortable. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and what I'm also discovering is that if I invite in sort of this desire um, and I play with colors, I bought some purple shoes the other day in New York City, they're mm-hmm. bright orchid. Um, if I do the things that make me feel good, they all add up and they enhance my sex life as well as the other more mundane aspects of living. And, and that's what I want people to understand is that we can have it all, but we have to, it's an active, it's an active process. And so I'm sort of playing still with what that looks like for me. You, you mentioned in that same post that that involves risks and mistakes and being vulnerable. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking sort of a new approach to relationships. I'm seeing two people. We all know about everybody and I'm getting a little judgment around that. And that's sort of that risk piece um, in terms of doing something that is a little outside of the norm. So I think, and I wasn't a person who took risks as, as a child and as an early adult, um, you know, it's much safer to sort of be contained and color within the lines. But if we're not, if we're not willing to risk something, if we're not willing to let ourselves be a little bit vulnerable, I think we miss out. I'm looking for those experiences that are going to make me feel good. And it is a little unnerving. I want to start traveling and I have to, I do that alone because while I have two partners or two relationships, um, neither of them are right here in the same town that I am. So I'm also learning to be sort of unpartnered or solo and go out and do some fun things. And it's a little scary sometimes. What's made it possible for you to take this new approach? <laughs> Lots of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I haven't been in therapy for a number of years, but certainly therapy, thinking about what I really want, sort of letting go of some things, I write every morning, and my journaling often takes me to places I hadn't anticipated. Um, and, and maybe it's looking at my age and going, okay, so here you are. You're 60. You're 61 now. What is it you want to do? You know, it, I didn't come into money. That's, you know, it's not a, a financial freedom kind of thing. It's, um, 
I wish it were. I, I don't know. I just suddenly thought I've got to go do what I want to do. I've got to figure this out. And, and it's been fun. You know, the, the missteps aren't always easy. Um, it just happened. I don't know how it happened. It, you know, it's like embracing the gray hair and being really open about saying, yep, I'm 61. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Damn it. Don't you dare say a word about that. You know, <laughs> it, I, there is no real answer for that. I don't know. How does that vulnerability relate to the sexual part? Um, hmm. I guess what I'm really asking is, is it more about courage or is it about letting go of things? Maybe it's a little of both. It's, it's probably for me a lot of letting go because, you know, wandering off into a new relationship um, and, and having sex, allowing oneself to be intimate and seen, and seen is a big piece of that for me, and I'll explain, uh, it is, is vulnerable. Suppose I don't get it right. Suppose... Suppose um, I don't have the, the wonderful orgasm he thinks he's going to give me. Suppose my head's not in the right place. Suppose I go, oh, my gosh, what was I thinking? Because I've been there. But it, it's letting go of the old stuff. It's letting go of other people's opinions that you have to be in love and have seen someone for a year or that you can't. Of all the shoulds and woulds and coulds that, that we throw at people when they're approaching sex. Um, Having relationship with two people, is that something that you could have done as a younger person? It never dawned on me. I was not the kind of girl or young woman who dated more than one guy at a time. I didn't think of myself as very savvy or sophisticated. I also grew up in a very, very small community. And, And this just sort of happened over the last year or so. I started thinking about it. Because one of the men I see, I've seen on and off for a number of years, isn't very available sometimes. And thought, you know, we have the capacity to care for more than one person. I grew up in this sort of Disney, you know, happily ever after Snow White kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It it didn't it didn't really work. It could have worked with a different set of circumstances, but why not try something different? Why not have more than one person who I find enjoyable and pleasurable, who offer different things for me. And it's not all about the sex. I mean, just kind of, why not? Is really the better answer. Mm-hmm. You speak to many people about sexuality. What is the difference that you've noted between how people over and under 50 talk about sex and desire? You know, you... you Society, or you know what you see every day on the news, would have you think that people over fifty are going to be a little reticent about this. But when I start talking to an audience and they're older, I see nods, I see yes, I see people coming up to me and sharing stories. They are eager for this and very open about sex in a way I had never anticipated. Um, when I talk to younger people, I sometimes think they have to work past my being older than they expected mm-hmm. and being more comfortable talking about things than they thought I might be. Um, and they're interested, but it's it's a different feel. There is, I think, in older adults, a relaxing, a 
is sort of a um, relief that somebody's willing to talk about this. And I was sitting in New York City giving a talk to 80-something-year-olds about dating. And the woman sitting next to me before I'm introduced means over to say to me, I'm having great sex. Said, oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Just he's 10 years younger than I am, and I'm kind of chortling. So here's this 80-something-year-old. And the guy, actually, I think was in his late 60s. So the, the session's over. She comes up to me, and she says, thank you so much. And then she says, oh, and by the way, I'm multi-orgasmic. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, she looked like a little old granny. I mean, she kind of had a Betty White look about her. And she is applauding her own sexuality. I mean, and it feels different and more genuine and more authentic than if I were to hear a 30-year-old say something. And and I I don't know why that is necessarily, except that it goes counter, I guess, to what we've always heard or Mm -hmm. what we are led to expect. When you're out there talking to people, do you see cultural differences, racial, ethnic, uh, by class? You know, I in most of the venues in which I've been speaking, and this is an, that's an interesting question, um, are very limited in that range. And so I've not had the opportunity to speak over a broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. I um, In some of the professional conferences I've spoken at um, it's a it's a sex positive group, so it's a group of people who really don't need to hear what I have to say. They've already got it. <laughs> and I I then you know yeah, and I'm become the sort of um, vanilla person in the room, trying to say you know we need to have education for the average person because we don't. A lot of a lot of what we see out here isn't geared for people like you and me. It's geared for um, people coming from alternate lifestyles or trying to figure out new approaches to, to kink or the variety of practices. It's for younger people and sort of that typical middle class, middle-aged woman, you know, I call it the white picket fence thing. There's not a whole lot of education geared to that dynamic. So that tends to be where I go. And that limits my exposure to, um, to a wider range of people. So do you find the more alternative, more kink community open to older people, or is that always a surprise and a novelty? No, they're pretty open. They're, they're open. Um, I feel um, that there's less of a, of a barrier there among age. And what I find, you know, we, a lot of the conversation is that polyamory lifestyles and non-monogamy are this new trend. So if you go to some of these conferences, you'll find um, people who've quietly been living alternative lifestyles for 30, 40 some years. Um, this is nothing new. It's just sort of hit this wave. Uh, I've, I've made some really nice friendships with the women who I would say are in their late 20s and early 30s who actually enjoy having conversation and finding some common ground with someone who looks like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it's, it's been kind of fun. You know, the first conference I went to was a shocker. I was like, oh, my God, I'm not in the right place. I felt very, um, I felt very awkward. And that's diminished over the last several years. Um, but it's a it's a pretty um, it's a pretty age neutral kind of environment, I think. Do you have any worries about 
our generation, the generations uh, coming up about aging and sex? What are your concerns? My biggest concern is that is the rising medicalization, sort of the pharmacology of sex. Hmm. I well, I think it's a good thing to a degree, but I also think in this rush to push pills at people, and I would say women more specifically, there's a failure to address all of the various aspects. I mean, obviously, Viagra is a pill that does something very specific, visual, and and has a, here, take the pill, and here's what happens. But when but with some of this and the new, um, the Slibanserum, the, the pill that is mistakenly called Pink Viagra, mm-hmm. there's so many other things that we have to talk about. You know, what's the relationship like? Do you even know where your clitoris is? Do you have an understanding of your own sex drive? Um, there's a lot of work we do first before we throw an expensive pill at a woman. And I, I, I don't want to see medicine be used instead of or as a standalone without having age-appropriate sex education because there's a lot we can do to support women in addition to or before we say, well, just go take a pill. You've obviously got a problem because I don't think it's all brain chemistry. And that's my bigger fear is that we will just get so drug-oriented or device-oriented that we forget about the power of touch mm. and, and real intimate connection in our lives. Um, there's a new um, device out there, and it's a, well done, and the people who are putting it together are research, they're female gynecologists, and I think it's called Fiera, and I might have that wrong. Um, and it, in the pitch that I got, it's designed to for a woman to use on her clitoris right before she has sex to bring about the arousal. She uses it for X number of minutes. Then her the blood has flowed to her clitoris and she's, quote, aroused and can now have sex. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so that's kind of great. But does that bypass the 20 to 30 minutes of affection and touch and intimacy she could have with a partner that would bring about that arousal in a natural, sexy way instead of going, oh, excuse me, hold on, I'm going to run to the bathroom, I'm going to stick this on for five minutes, I'm going to come back, and then I'm going to be ready for you. <laughs> that When I look at it that way, I find it a, a, a not something I, I want to recommend. Mm-hmm. Picture someone out there listening to this. And during this conversation has begun to wonder, okay, what would inviting desire mean for me? What would you want them to think about? How do they feel about their body? What is their personal connection to their own genitals? Do they understand how they work? You know, have you thought about the specific things that would make you feel good? What do you want? What do you need? And, and I, would, I, I would say to women... We have to find that for ourselves first. We can't assume that it always comes in relationship to a partner, nor can we assume that the partner can just do do the trick. We walk in, he says, if we're in a heterosexual relationship, oh, let's have sex, and we're ready to roll. I, I think um, inviting desire means taking responsibility and making an active choice to awaken our own bodies. 
And what are the roadblocks that you find, especially for older people, to doing that? That notion that our man is supposed to know how to satisfy us. We, we may all of a sudden be waking up and going, oh, I really could have desire, but I don't. Because for years, we weren't trained to think that we did. Our job is just to sort of lie there and have babies. <laughs> um, well, I know that sounds so awful, but that's how I feel about it sometimes. What excuses do you hear people say for why they're, they're not, they, they can't invite desire into their lives? A lot of women, as they get older, and I hear this often, and this, are still stuck in the intercourse because of their relationship, especially if they're in a traditional heterosexual long-term relationship. Intercourse is sex, and that's the only vehicle for sex. It can really shut a woman down if that's not satisfying to her, and if age-related, hormonal-related issues make that a little bit painful. So instead of exploring all these other avenues, um, which I wrote about, which I'm sort of writing about in this way to help women, um, other avenues of what feels good, what other ways could my body come alive that don't have to do with penetrative sex? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it means we have to sort of explore and think about what we like. So we have to really, we have to engage our brains and we have to get sort of um, prepared for this mentally. And I don't mean to make that sound like a real task, but, but we need to be active. We can't, I don't think very many women just sort of go, okay, I'm going to have sex today. And boom, desire automatically arises. We have to make a shift. We have to get a little engaged and we're different from men in that way tell a man he's going to have sex today and most likely he's going to have a very immediate physiological um, reaction to that. Mm -hmm. And we just don't. And I think we, with time and age, I think that that, that, that challenge for us becomes even more so. Well, thank you for this conversation, Walker. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on. I love to talk about sex. (laughs) Okay, old people, we need to do our Kegel exercises now, but since Prince is counting them out for us, it's going to be quick. Hello, Alberta Knish, our very old love correspondent. Hi, how are you? Good. What do you have for us? Well, I thought we would start uh, looking at sex around the globe. And as the first segment, I'm going to look at ancient Egyptians and specifically a very interesting old work called Turin Papyrus Number 55001. Mm. So... To give a little bit of background on on the culture is to ancient Egyptians, sex was really important in their daily life and in the afterlife. Uh, Egyptians died expecting to resume their sexual lives in the afterlife and, in fact, in their belief system, in order to be reborn in the afterlife, you needed to have sex with your 
life partner or somebody else in that afterlife to make it happen. And that kind of harkens back to their overall creation myth, which was that the first god basically masturbated to create all the other gods. Really? So, yes. So, um, they're much like our culture. They depicted sex in their hieroglyphs, in their the paintings that are found inside the tombs and everything. But it's all very, uh, it, it's coded. There are um, there are things that mean sex that really aren't. So first, um, like some poetry from ancient Egyptian times. Uh, hints to this. This woman talks about bathing in front of her love and saying, I'll go down to the water with you and come out to you carrying a red fish, which is just right in my fingers. And what that red fish probably refers to is the tilapia, which was associated with the heart, with life, with fertility. Um, and uh, this this image is basically, she's saying, I'm going to get wet and naked for you, and we're all going to have some lovely sex on the bank, banks of the Nile. <laughs> so when you go into the, into the tombs, um, there are pictures of the gods having sex because uh, that, that's part of, of the religious belief, and that's okay. But when it comes to men and women, I think what people will be familiar with is sort of the hieroglyph of the husband and wife sitting very sedately, not really touching. But if you look into the hieroglyphs, there's all kinds of other little imagery that mean that means sex. And now we come to this Turin papyrus, which was found in a town called Dier el Bari, and that was where the tomb makers of ancient Egypt lived, as well as the site of very many famous tombs. Papyrus is in, was probably a commissioned piece of work of satire. The first half of it is not problematic. It shows people um, in animal form doing daily stuff, and, and the ancient Egyptians used that kind of thing, the same way political satirists do now, making um, animals with particular characteristics stand in for people, and it's definitely poking fun at the upper classes. The second part of it is a very lowbrow kind of guy having all kinds of outrageous sex, with a, a high-class-looking woman, maybe um, meant to be a priestess at a temple. And this papyrus itself is so graphic that in the Library of Turin, where it exists, women weren't allowed to look at it at all until the 1950s. And it was kept in the back room, and you had to have a very good reason to even request it to look at. It finally went on display in the 1970s. But when you, when you look at this, it's uh, like one person, one person is uh, the, the woman's in a chariot and the man's on the ground having sex with her from behind. I mean, like, how would you even physically pull that off? <laughs> if you see the way the phallus is drawn, you see the way that, that they imagine it. Well, I'm, now, lo I'm looking at it. And, um, <laughs> she's quite an acrobat. Now... What it says, there's a little marking, um, a, a written bit of, of, of words for that. And what she's saying there is, come behind me with your love, O son. You have found my heart. It is agreeable work. 
Hmm. Even the, the the writing that they put near it is kind of satirizing the highbrow royal love poems, uh, the, the example that I just gave you. So what they think is that this work was kind of like what Shakespeare did in his time. Somebody who was very wealthy commissioned this papyrus and it would have been read out loud to his friends, maybe, or kept in the entertainment room as a way to poke fun at a class that they couldn't actually attain by birth and to sort of make fun of the repression of the royal classes. Mm. So this is the Simpsons of, of papyrus. You know, uh, is anybody familiar with Lord Wilmont, who, the Earl of Rochester, who wrote, uh, you know, who satirized uh, the French and British courts? It's more like that, probably. Well, they're really amazing, and I know that they didn't show me these in history class. No, no, they didn't. And <laughs> as I said, um, the, the people try to keep this under wraps. Um, academics don't even want to talk about the fact that sex is actually happening all over the walls of the tombs. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, the interpretation of it as satire is very controversial. I think when you look in the entire context, that's absolutely what's going on there. A uh, little bit of porn so you can poke fun at the upper classes, and we've done that all throughout art and history. Fantastic. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. In case you missed it in sex news this week, men fake orgasms too. A lot, apparently, you big fakers. Up to 25% of men have pulled a Sally Loves Harry. But the reason men do this seems to differ a bit from women's motivation. While women seek to preserve the ego of the laboring fellow, the gents are often preserving their own image. Oh, maybe not so different. I was in Melbourne around this time last year, but I picked the wrong year. Since this May, there's an eco-warrior group holding an event in the Botanic Gardens using sex to sell nature, which may sound desperate, but if you think about it, Australia has an appallingly high rate of both flora and fauna that bite, poison, eat, and sting humans to death. Sex sells, obviously, so this bathhouse experience of sex in the park is a clever way to pit one of humanity's greatest drives against its quite natural fear of nature's teeth and claws. Is that a deadly brown snake, or are you just happy to see me? You looked forward to it. You planned it in every detail in advance, or, no, maybe it happened spontaneously or against your will, but you will always remember it, the virginity thing. But guess what? Science says it was in your genes. Those horrid, deterministic DNA folks say that, at least at a population level, your V-card got punched because of biological destiny, not societal expectations or keeping Johnny from breaking up with you or everyone does it on prom night. In a giant blow for free will, the DNA and first age of Nookie for 120,000 UK residents aged 40 to 69, turns out timing was all in the genes. The double helix. Man, we 
you talk about sex, everything seems like a euphemism. Do you like podcasts? I do. I listen to so many that I actually look for household chores to do so that I can listen longer. And if you love this podcast and you think others might, do me this quick favor this week. Go to the OurBetterHalf.net website. Click on the link to another podcast called The Big Listen and leave a message saying why you listen to this one. I love The Big Listen and would be over the top to hear them mention our little project here. And now I have a neat clip to play for you. But first, I need to ask you, old people, when was your last orgasm? If you don't remember, it's been far too long. And if you do, well, then I don't need to remind you. Another one soon might be fun. I leave you with a clip from the perfectly marvelous YouTube video on sexual consent that's making the rounds. It's very, very British. Just imagine instead of initiating sex, you're making them a cup of tea. You say, hey, would you like a cup of tea? And they go, oh my God, I would love a cup of tea. Thank you. Then you know they want a cup of tea. And if they say, no, thank you, then don't make them tea at all. Don't make them drink tea. Don't get annoyed at them for not wanting tea. And if they are unconscious, don't make them tea. Unconscious people don't want tea. Take the tea away. Make sure they are safe because unconscious people don't want tea. Trust me on this.